Welcome once again to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode two for February 2023. It's hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. And coming up in this episode, I met with former motor racing marshal Steve Tarrant and chatted to him about his lifelong passion for the sport and the accident which changed his life. And Andrew Livingston talks to me about often misguided or ill-informed complaints about farming practices. Richard Lee tells us how he's been at the forefront of a global revival in the popularity of shepherd's huts. And Rachel Rowe has been finding out about the connection between the Hogarth paintings of London's St Bartholomew's Hospital and a surgeon from North Dorset. And Roger Guttridge recounts the disastrous flooding of North Dorset a little over 100 years ago. Steve Tarrant is a Dorset resident who's had a lifelong interest in motorsport. A little over 20 years ago, he suffered horrific injuries in an accident whilst marshalling a hill climb race. I visited Steve to talk to him about his interest in the sport and how, despite his accident, he'd managed to retain an active involvement in motorsport. Steve, thank you for agreeing to talk to us today on the BV Magazine podcast. It's good to meet you. Thank you very much indeed. Welcome. Now, your life has been wrapped around motorsport, really, hasn't it? So tell us how it all began. Oh, that goes back. Basically, as a child, my father had a passing interest in motoring and motorsports, would bring home the magazines. We'd see the Grand Prix as they were on TV. Um, obviously much more limited to what goes on now and I just was fascinated by it um, and like any child of the 60s I had lots of matchbox corgi and dinky toys and uh, you know your imagination would run wild and I suppose it all led from there um, there was the occasional um, trips to scrambles at uh, Ringwood or the stock car circuit so you'd see some motorsports but very limited but as soon as I was old enough, uh, there was the opportunity to go to the Grand Prix. So in 1980, I was off to Brands Hatch for the first Grand Prix, had tent and rucksack. And basically the coach took us to about 15 miles away from the circuit. And then I had to walk the last 15 miles just to be there. But the beauty back then was it was a three day race meeting, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it was £35 all in for putting your bum on the grass and tent um, accommodation nearby. It was a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, you grew up and, wow, I'm doing something I didn't know I could do before. I'm guessing the cost may have gone up a little since then. Just a tad. <laughs> and from there, it went to Le Mans. And that was where I really started to learn the passion of endurance racing, which is something I have always loved. But my actual participation started um, a few years later when I bought my first house. And like most people, you know, you're short of money when you buy your first one and you're looking for any means possible. I already had a full time day job. And I saw an advert in the local paper for car park attendance at a stock car circuit. And I thought, why not? You know, direct a few cars, park them up, watch a bit of racing. What's to lose? So that's how I started. After two or three weeks of that, the organisers realised that I was actually very interested in motorsports itself. And 
basically offered me the opportunity to work on the leisure park side of things where they had carts and quad bikes and off-road jeeps as well as stock cars and therefore I kind of had a second career alongside my full-time working career in IT Uh, so therefore I was able to get out at evenings and weekends on corporate parties and thoroughly enjoy myself and actually homing uh, some marshalling skills and I did that for seven years. Well, you've got an impressive list of places that you have marshaled, uh, Le Mans particularly, Silverstone, Goodwood. Yeah, well, basically, Le Mans came after the accident, believe it or not. Obviously, going back to 2000, I was at Goodwood for the Festival of Speed for the first time. Never been there, but always fancied being there. So, got accepted, went on the Friday, learnt what it was about on their test day, and then the Saturday was the first racing day up the hill climb. Sadly, late in the afternoon, I got involved in an accident at the finish line um, where John Dawson Damer in his Lotus um, crashed and I was uh, roped up into the, uh, what went on there. So tell us a little bit about that because that was obviously a completely life-changing event for you. Did you see it? coming you know what um, it's all very very quick obviously isn't it well that's the trouble it was so quick that really no I didn't see what was coming uh the path of the track that I was working was a straight after an uphill corner and from the corner to the finish line was about two to three seconds at best so really you were reacting on sound because it was a hill climb the cars were only going up one at a time. So it's not like a circuit race where you got 20 cars all rushing to the finish and therefore everybody's trying to jostle with everybody else for space. This was just one car, a road and a clock. So in theory, it is a safer way of doing motorsports. Should have been, but accidents still happen. And unfortunately, I got wrapped up into one. And what sort of speed would uh, the collision have taken place at? We reckon probably about 100 to 140 mile an hour. So, Gosh. And in actual fact, I mean, you describe yourself as lucky in some respects because others weren't. Sadly, yes, the driver died at the scene and Andy Carpenter, who was the fire marshal alongside me, died succumbed that night on the operating table. Sadly, um, these things happen. And, um, you know, thankfully, they're very, very rare. But when they happen, it's normally quite severe. And that obviously then did you up in hospital. And what was the road from there? Yeah, I guess it was quite a protracted affair. Well, first of all, it was about six weeks in intensive care, five months in hospital, and then another 18 months as an outpatient, visiting um, physiotherapy departments and all those sort of things. So first of all, get the body working again then to learn how to walk on a prosthetic limb and to get the strength to be able to do so comfortably and all the setbacks that that entails. And gradually, I think it was about two years from the accident, I was able to then return to full-time work. Just for anybody who hasn't read the article, you lost your right leg in the accident. That's correct. And you did go through the prosthesis route but ultimately now you're in a wheelchair. I had the prosthetic for about eight or nine years, and the lifestyle has changed. When I was at work, you you needed the ability to get around, but I was very much an office-based worker, and when I effectively was retired, or made redundant originally from the first company, 
my lifestyle then was much more sat at a table and not really doing much in the more in the way of walking activities. I was doing lots of other activities, which the wheelchair was more than comfortable for doing. Life has changed over that time, and these are skills that I've developed and uh, utilised to the, my advantage where I can. Some people might have taken the view, well, that's the end of motorsport for me. Uh, you know, I'll find a different interest. You didn't take that view, did you? Well, the story goes that I was on life support for the first six days and morphine to the hilt and all the rest of it. And then when I came round, I was asked two questions. Do you know where you are and do you know what happens? And I said no to both. And the doctors and nurses sat down and they told me about the accident and what I'd lost and the fact that I'd lost the leg. And my immediate response was, they haven't seen the last of me. Now, where that came from, I didn't know. But everybody's different. Uh, I've had this conversation with quite a few people since the accident saying, oh, I couldn't have done that. And I turn around and say, you don't know what you can do until you are put in that situation. You did get back into it in a slightly different form, I imagine. But nonetheless, you were able to get back involved in motorsport. Yes, the, the years of um, running out to the track with a fire extinguisher and grabbing a driver from a burning car by his epaulets. Yeah, those days were gone past and I leave that for somebody else much younger than now to do. But there were still plenty of jobs that could be done. But what probably opened up the uh, work skills that I was able to get into was an email from France. Now, Andy Carpenter, the marshal that died alongside me, the weekend before, he'd been at Le Mans. And it was a passion of mine that I wanted to go to Le Mans as a working marshal, having been there as a spectator. And we'd spent apparently most of the day talking about Le Mans and how you got involved and who you were replied to and all those sort of things. And he was passing on all the knowledge and bits and pieces. And of course, then we had the accident later that same day. I thought nothing of it and basically it was just recovering from the accident. Um, Bernard Nierengarten, who was the post chief of Andy, wrote to me, having seen a website I'd created at the time. And said, you know, obviously Andy was one of my crew and obviously really sorry that he's passed away and such like. But at the bottom of it, he put me an invitation saying, if you ever come to Le Mans, please come and stay on our post and be an observer with us. We'd love to have you here. Well, you don't take an opportunity like that laying down. It was a case of, yes, we're going next year. And therefore, 2003, I was invited to actually be there and for a week live the dream of being at Le Mans, watching the 24-hour race, but not wearing overalls, only there, fairly as a spectator. Loved it, but I wanted to do more. And therefore, in the subsequent years, with negotiation, I was able to step up what I could do, how far I could go, what my limits were. Obviously, I wasn't allowed onto the hot track when it was live, all these sort of things. Steve, yours is very much a story of not letting a setback, a major setback in this case, prevent you from carrying on enjoying your passion in life. And, you know, that's, that's wonderful the way you've, you've been able to adapt to that. You've recently attended an annual Night of Champions at the RAC Club. And you've that's been correct. honoured by the sport. Just tell us about that. Well, basically, I was thinking, you know, I'd done, when I finished in 2017, that was my formal stuff completing, basically, I could grow old. Therefore, it was a surprise when I had a letter through the post that came last October saying, 
we invite you to attend the Night of Champions in order to get a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I'm thinking, really? What did I do? So anyway, we've um, obviously corresponded and sorted out what was going on. And then to turn up on the night itself in London, you get to the RAC club in Pall Mall, and you're there with the likes of Sir Patrick Head, uh, Ron Dennis, you know, all the names of motorsports. Suddenly you're up on stage in front of them, receiving an award and doing an interview with uh, the host. And you're kind of thinking, whoa. What a great experience. And I should say previous recipients of that have included Sterling Moss and Jackie Stewart, so you're in very good company. Well, that is the thing, that usually it was always the drivers or the team owners or, you know, celebrities like that who got this sort of trophy. So suddenly being the first marshal, as far as I'm aware, and given my circumstances of where I am, that's the last thing I was expecting, but hey, it happened. (laughs) What happens now, Steve? What's the future hold? I have been contacted by Motorsport UK, who are the governing body of motorsports in the United Kingdom. And they've asked me to join their Disability and Accessibility Expert Committee, which I'm planning to accept. And we are seeing how we can encourage and improve accessibility to everybody so that there are no boundaries as such. Yes, there are certain things which maybe are not desirable roles to have, but everybody should get a chance. Motorsports has got positions for anybody and everybody, irrespective of whatever label you want to put them on then. We don't need to live by labels. All we need is the people that want to be there and have the desire to be there. Great way of using your past experience. Absolutely. Pass it on for the next generation. Steve, thank you very much for talking to us today. My pleasure. Many more of us are out walking in the countryside these days, especially since the lockdowns of COVID. And this is one reason that farmers are at the receiving end of complaints about what they're doing or how they're looking after their land or animals. Some of these complaints are justified, but most, it appears, are not. Often the person might mean well, but perhaps more often those complaints are misguided and come from not understanding the true nature of modern farming. All complaints are investigated, which can waste everybody's time. I asked farmer Andrew Livingston if only livestock farmers were at the receiving end of complaints. Unfortunately, it's not just livestock farmers. It's a, um, it's a lot of arable farmers get complaints for stuff like really silly things like cutting, using tractors at the wrong time of the day and managing footpaths and uh, styes and gates etc but predominantly yes the um, the complaints are towards livestock owners and their welfare certainly the ones that trading standards receive presumably andrew it's it's down to ignorance of the realities of farming and, and particularly livestock farming a vast majority of it is yes um, but there is still a few good people that spot mistreatment of animals which unfortunately does just happen occasionally there are the odd bad farmer um, that thankfully people putting complaints in make a massive help in in catching but yeah there is a a vast majority of the public that put in complaints that unfortunately don't understand what farming is really about and what an animal looks like when it's in the field and unfortunately the horrific weather of just wet windy rain just makes animals look a bit sad and people automatically think that they're being mistreated but 
animals have lived outside in the rain for centuries. Uh, for thousands of years, in fact. You mentioned the rain and bad conditions, and obviously that's much worse in the winter. So I'm assuming you see more complaints in the winter, do you? Uh, certainly in my conversation with Neil Martin at the Trading Standards, uh, he said that there was a slight increase in the complaints over the winter. But obviously in the summer you have more people walking footpaths, more people out and about. So there is, there is a, an uptake in the summer as well. To come back, Andrew, to, the, to the, the, the question of the excessive wet in the winter, and, of course, we certainly saw an awful lot of wet towards the end of last year, didn't we? I, that can actually pose a logistical problem for farmers, can't it? Actually getting out to the animals and sorting out a real problem. Yeah, it's, it's usually more of an issue for sheep farmers who have sheep in land all over the county. They, um, they find that rather than having a tractor that they take their equipment out with, they will literally go around with a truck and some handling equipment, just some gates and crushes, etc. And in the wet weather, you just can't get out to the fields because you'll find that a lot of sheep are run on the some of the hardiest land, so the most vertical and rockiest. Um, so you just can't get to them if it's wet. It does have its positives, but then also you have issues with flint um, in more vertical, rockier climates. There's always a challenge, isn't there? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, it's never easy. <laughs> what, what do you farm, Andrew? Uh, I, uh, I farm chickens. So we have uh, 8,000 layer hens um, in Bemminster and Weymouth between two sites. And then we have, we've got one alpaca, uh, about 50 Aberdeen Angus cattle uh, and a few horses and other bits and bobs to keep ha us busy. Ha have you ever been at the receiving end of a complaint? Um, we have actually, yeah. We, a few years ago, we were, we were trying to rehome our chickens from one of our, from our site in Weymouth. And, Obviously, the reason we rehome the chickens is so that they can go live on their life rather than having to be put into the food chain. Because um, after 13 months, the chickens just aren't financially viable to keep on because they don't lay enough eggs. But they make great backyard chickens. And unfortunately, a few of the birds had been ill throughout the crop. So they had uh, pecked each other. And when someone came to collect some of the birds, they put a complaint in. So we had to have an inspection from Trading Standards because of this complaint. Did they not complain to you directly? No, they did not, unfortunately. Now, how often does that happen, that people are, are um, well, for whatever reason, maybe it's just that they, uh, they, they don't have the guts to, uh, to challenge a farmer, how, how often does, does it happen that rather than talking to the farmer about what they perceive as a problem, they go straight to the authorities? Well, it's uh, it would always be best for the public to approach the farmer and to have a conversation with the farmer. But unfortunately, in, today, in today's age, it's not viable to to have the public going up to farmers all the time because... 
Unfortunately, sometimes farmers can be caught on a very bad day and they might not be quite amenable to someone walking onto their farm telling you, them that they're you, doing everything wrong. You, you mean they might get a bit shirt, but, shirty? Well, yeah, shirt, shirty would probably be a, a nice way to put it, but they can, um, they can be quite abrasive if they've, uh, if they've been up milking early in the morning or chasing sheep around a field. Um, but... Ideally, in a world, yes, it's always best to go and speak to the farmer first, but then you have to understand that you're walking onto someone's land where you're not allowed to be. It's all right to be walking on footpaths and down tracks, but as soon as you walk onto a farmer's yard, you're treading a treacherous ground and you have to approach them in the correct manner. How much, Andrew, do you think that social media is responsible for an increase in complaints? What? See, this is, this is a tough one because I, I wouldn't say social media as such, but I would say the media in general brings in an uptake of complaints because, unfortunately, farmers are only portrayed in a bad light in the media. It's always hidden camera footage or animal activists that are, are being put into the media. Whilst when you look at social media, a lot of farmers at the moment are trying really hard to get out onto social media to try and spread the good word that they do and try and educate people because that is basically what is at the heart of it all is education um i would rather than social media i would start trying to get schools more into farming so that you're educating the youngest generation for them to know where their food comes from and what it takes to grow it so the actual realities of of modern farming you mean Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, unfortunately, um, people have a view of farming that it's all just going out ploughing fields and sowing seeds, but it isn't like that at all. It's it's the day to day grind of checking your stock and making sure that animals are completely fine and healthy, whilst trying to juggle weather, predators. It's it's not an easy job. And and of course, uh, I think. It's probably true to say that um, many farmers are under increasing pressure these days, aren't they? Uh, and, and, and struggling with just to cope with things like climate change and increased paperwork and so on. It does get harder and harder. I mean, it, it, one of the best things that we did at our farm, for example, was we removed ourselves from the the line code scheme, which is the scheme which allows you to sell your eggs into supermarkets. But the problem with, with that and the problem with Red Tractor is that they just create so many hoops for farmers to have to jump through, through unnecessary paperwork, unnecessary auditing. Whilst when you remove a lot of those stresses, it makes a farmer's life a lot easier because it is, it, it's lonely at times for farmers. They're out in their fields on their own and you do have to be careful of their mental health and their mental well-being because it is when... A farmer is under pressure, they're stressed, and they're feeling that, that they start to get issues with their animals. And of course, COVID has not helped, has it? No, it certainly hasn't. Certainly for, um, in, the, in the, first, the first stint of COVID during the lockdowns, that was the hardest for farmers, because a lot of farmers, their only time of meeting other people would be on a Tuesday on a Skittles night or down the market on a Saturday morning. As soon as you take that away, they don't see neighbours. They don't, 
they could stand outside at eight o'clock and clap, but they wouldn't be able to hear anyone because their neighbours 15, well, 15 fields away. But I'm sure, Andrew, that you would uh, you would not want to be doing anything else, even though you've got added pressure now in the shape of a new baby, haven't you? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the new baby is a reason to certainly go out to work and stay at work. Um, but I, uh, I don't I don't think my partner would appreciate me uh, leaving her to do it on her own. But no, it's like during COVID, it, it was it's the best job to have in the world because you get to spend all day outside, even when it's horrific weather. It, there's there's nothing better than being outside with with your animals, being a good stockman. In this month's a country living. Tracy Beardsley meets Richard Lee, Dorset craftsman, founder of Plankbridge and a pioneer of a global revival of shepherd's huts. In a moment of quiet reverie, she's rolled out to greet the bright winter sunlight. A majestic diva, she's a super hut, the shepherd's hut equivalent of an executive home. This is a luxury lodge made from English oak, insulated with Lakeland sheep's wool with very modern fittings. Six weeks in the making from chassis to chimney, behind her stands a 37-strong making team of skilled Dorset craftspeople, carpenters, joiners, painters, metalworkers and more. This is the Plankbridge family. They're makers of fine shepherd's huts, the only ones boasting the prestigious endorsement of the Royal Horticultural Society. It's a rural business that's enjoyed a 30% increase in turnover with the sudden growth of working from home during the pandemic. As well as garden offices, these shepherd's huts are used for accommodation and treatment rooms by the upmarket hotel chain The Pig, by the National Trust for offices and visitor meets and greets, for glamping as B&Bs, and they're sold to celebrities including TV's countryside champion Kate Humble, a 90s rock star whose name must remain a secret, and even occasionally to shepherds. At the top of the family tree are Richard Lee and his partner Jane, who started Plankbridge 23 years ago, initially working out of a converted chicken shed. By 2007, they'd recruited their first employee, part-time and a big step. With 37 employees, including Richard's brother, who makes the chassis units, plus a further dozen crucial subcontracted electricians, plumbers and powder coaters, Plankbridge works out of a huge converted grain store in Piddle Hinton, deep in Thomas Hardy territory. And it's thanks to Dorset's most famous author that the idea of building 21st century shepherd's huts came about. Richard says, We live in the heart of far from the madding crowd country. Waterston Manor, the inspiration of Bathsheba's Weatherby Farm, is just down the road. Smitten farmer Boldwood was at nearby Druce Farm and Hardy's own cottage at Higher Bockhampton is near to us too. Walking my dog near Hardy's cottage I spotted a dilapidated shepherd's hut and I started researching. I was self-employed at the time making kitchen and garden furniture but it really wasn't satisfying my creative bent. Back then lots of people were restoring old huts but I wanted to make my own from scratch, be true to the original style with all the modern qualities of a timber framed building. Richard did just that, his first hut incorporated cavity insulation, a breather membrane and electrics. He kept and used his hut in his garden and later advertised it and sold it easily. Then a lady from Wells called me wanting to buy it. I told her I'd already sold it but could make her another one and that's how the business began. 
Plank Bridge now ships much further afield than Wessex. The latest Super Hut is bound for the Channel Islands. Huts have been shipped to America and across Europe. One customer, a real shepherd in Scandinavia, needed her hut as protection from wolves. Continuing the hardy link, Plank Bridge also worked on Gabriel's Oak Shepherd's Hut in the 2015 film Far From The Madding Crowd. Look closely and you may even spot Richard Lee in his role as an extra. Sitting in the 1921 Bournemouth tram, which is now his quirky office, Richard is currently planning his latest creation, The Gardener's Bothy. Designs are under wraps until the big reveal at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show in May, but it will be made from homegrown ash, chestnut and oak. The show is a great launch pad for innovation, he says. Richard trained in woodcraft at Hook Park in Bemminster, the brainchild of renowned furniture maker John Makepeace. Makepeace was ahead of his time. He wanted to make us entrepreneurs in wood. You didn't just learn to make things, you learned about British timbers, marketing, accounting, running a business. We used to get high-powered furniture designers from London to lecture us, which I found enthralling. I'm really driven by the arts and crafts movement, and it's incredible to think shepherds' huts, which historians date back as far as 1596, are still evolving and are now a familiar sight. But now it's not just in fields, they're in many back gardens too. Some quick-fire questions. Dinner party guests around a campfire by your hut. Musicians Mike Scott from The Waterboys and Paul McCartney, actress Kate Winslet, biological anthropologist Professor Alice Roberts, rewilding expert Derek Gow, American politician and activist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and comedian Billy Connolly. That should be an interesting mix. And your current reading list? A biography of Terry Pratchett. I'm not a particular fan of his work, but I like finding biographies of people I don't know much about. I'm also reading Lee Schofield's A Wild Fell, Fighting for Nature on a Lake District Farm. Rewilding and nature books are a bit of a passion of mine. And you can see more on the Plankbridge website, www.plankbridge.com. Hogarth paintings are undergoing restoration in London, but what do they have to do with a surgeon from North Dorset? Rachel Rowe reports. St Bartholomew's, the oldest hospital in England, is celebrating its 900th anniversary this year. It was founded in London by King Henry I's courtier, Rahir, in 1123. The hospital is famous for many innovative medical developments, including the discovery of blood circulation in 1628 by William Harvey. Today it's one of the largest cardiovascular centres in Europe. As part of the Bart's 900 celebrations, a major restoration programme is underway, funded by a £5 million award from the National Lottery Heritage Fund and focused on the Georgia North Wing. The building is famous for its paintings by William Hogarth, but what's their connection with North Dorset? John Freke, who lived from 1688 to 1756, was born in Oakford Fitzpain, the son of the village rector. He grew up in the North Dorset countryside and was educated locally. At the age of 17, he was apprenticed to Richard Blundell, a prominent London barber surgeon. In the days before medical schools became widely established, apprenticeships were often the only route into the profession. Blundell had a prolific practice and also attended the court of Queen Anne. Freak went on to marry Richard Blundell's daughter Elizabeth in 1713 
and having served a long apprenticeship, he qualified as a barber surgeon in 1720. Four years later, at the age of 36, he was appointed as assistant surgeon at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. In the 18th century, physicians were considered the experts in medicine. Barber surgeons were seen to perform the dirtier side of medical treatments, lancing boils, applying leeches and performing amputations. Anaesthetics had not yet been invented, so the job was harrowing, as were the treatments. They also cut hair, including monks' tonsures, and were known for styling beards. Today, traditional barbershops have red and white poles signifying the blood and bandages, the legacy of the days of the barber-surgeon. During the early part of the 18th century, the surgical profession we know today began to specialise and develop formal standards in training. Freke was asked by the governors at Barts to pioneer eye surgery. Through the development of a technique called couching for cataracts, John Freke became the first ophthalmic surgeon in 1727. He was also responsible for a number of other discoveries. He modernised obstetric forceps, making them safer, and he was the first to recognise the importance of removing lymphatic tissue in breast cancer. Freke also wrote about electricity, rickets, and recognised the importance of studying the body. He became the first curator of the Pathology Museum at Barts, which acted as a study resource for the hospital's medical students. With fellow surgeon Percival Pott, Freke was instrumental in establishing the College of Surgeons, which later became the Royal College of Surgeons. This move distinguished the surgical profession and its modern stringent standards from the old barber surgeons who returned to cutting hair. It was a pioneering move, and his legacy has saved thousands of lives through safer training standards. John Freak became a governor of St Bartholomew's Hospital at a time when it was being redesigned by James Gibbs. Part of the 18th century restoration of the already 500-year-old hospital was to the North Wing, and Italian artist Jacopo Amigoni was about to be commissioned to complete the decoration of the stairs. However, William Hogarth, a local artist and friend of John Freak, stepped in, incensed that an Italian had almost got the job. Hogarth offered his services without charge. He lived on nearby Bartholomew Close and had married a Dorset girl, Jane Thornhill, the daughter of Sir James Thornhill of Stalbridge, himself a distinguished artist. Bart's Heritage Chief Executive Will Palin says, We know from the archives that Freke was an advisor to the workings of the hospital building, and we can be certain he knew Hogarth. Hogarth created two large paintings, which still adorn the stairway, now known as the Hogarth Stair, which leads to the Great Hall. The Pool of Bethesda and the Good Samaritan were completed in 1736 and 1737, respectively and both depict healing scenes from the Bible at huge scale, featuring figures around seven feet high. But there's more to the artwork than meets the eye. Within the paintings are people with medical conditions, thought to have been modelled by patients from the hospital. It's thought that Freak advised Hogarth on the accuracy of the appearance of some of these diseases. Unusually for an artist known for caricatures, None of the illnesses are exaggerated, and they reflect what would have been seen regularly at the hospital at the time. Within the art are signs of gout, jaundice, rickets, breast cancer, possibly another connection to Freak's work, and the body language of fear and anxiety. 
There's also a blind man in the foreground of the Pool of Bethesda, possibly alluding to John Freak's role as first ophthalmic surgeon. The paintings have served as a unique teaching aid for medical students and nurses for 300 years. They're still used today. Hanging above the paintings on the Hogarth stair is an elaborately carved gilded chandelier, which was commissioned by John Freak and given to the hospital. It's inscribed with John Freak, surgeon of this hospital, in Latin around the centre. Hogarth had specifically requested that the completed canvases never be varnished, but when they were cleaned in the 1930s, seven coats of varnish were removed. As an indication of how much dirt the paintings accumulate, when they were again cleaned in the 1960s, it was only then that an inscription in the foundation stone in the second tableau was discovered. Will Palin says, The Hogarth stair is one part of a much bigger project. The £5 million grant will restore the entire North Wing, including the Great Hall. Freak's chandelier will also be getting a careful clean as part of the project, and it will look splendid. Today, as the hospital celebrates the past and looks forward to the future, the legacy of John Freak lives on in safer surgical professional standards that have saved thousands of lives. St Bart's has a small museum, open to the public, and there are also guided tours of the historic hospital, including the Hogarth Stair. More information about the paintings is on the Bart's Heritage site. Local History In this month's Looking Back column, Roger Guttridge describes a disastrous and yet miraculous day in North Dorset's memory. To those who've suffered water damage recently, it will be no consolation, but Dorset has rarely seen flooding like that which hit the county's northernmost reaches 106 years ago. The event was both a disaster and a miracle, the latter because there was no loss of human life, although there were numerous narrow escapes. It all began at 6pm on the 28th of June, when the mother of all thunderstorms deposited 10 inches of water in Bruton, Somerset, and 5 and 3 quarter inches on Borton here in Dorset. The rainfall proved too much for the dam at Gasper Bridge, which held back 18 acres of water to form Starhead's lower lake. During the night of June 28th, 29th, the lake suddenly burst through, destroying both bridge and dam and releasing millions of gallons into the valley. Witnesses likened the roar of rushing water to continuous thunder. The force of the water gouged a 30 feet deep chasm from the roads on either side, uprooted trees and washed out the foundations of Gasper Mill. As it entered Dorset, the flood first encountered Hindley's Borton Foundry, a former mill which traditionally manufactured heavy machinery. Since the outbreak of the First World War, it had produced three million hand grenades, known as mill bombs. The Western Gazette reported that a great wave swept through the workshops, causing damage of a most extraordinary character. Sheds and outbuildings were swallowed up by the torrent, walls demolished, heavy machinery, a steam lorry and a 1,500-weight safe overturned, a large boiler swept from one workshop to another, and 200 to 300 tonnes of coal washed away. A large cart was carried several hundred yards downstream, along with fences, posts and other objects. The main part of a flatbed lorry was later found half a mile away. The water and mud were up to 10 feet deep in parts of the foundry, and the caretaker, the only person left on site at the time, only escaped by climbing onto a roof. The bridge that carried the London to Exeter Road over the river collapsed, but in doing so probably saved the life of one Borton resident, a Mr Tufts. 
His cottage was flooded up to its ceiling, but would almost certainly have been demolished had not the main force of the water been released by the bridge collapse. Many other houses flooded to depths of three or four feet, including the police station. The impact on the community was ably described by Borton Parish Council Chairman B. Pope Bartlett in an appeal for money to help residents. He wrote, In many cases their homes have been flooded out, their furniture, clothes and food washed away or destroyed, and their gardens and allotments on which they had spent so much time wrecked beyond repair. As it headed for the village of Milton, the floodwater continued to wash away ricks and freshly cut hay, poultry from their pens and even pigs from their styes, though some pigs swam to fight another day. At Gillingham, a supplementary drama unfolded at Plank House, which the Red Cross had taken over as a hospital for wounded soldiers from the front. Miss Brock, the night nurse, first noticed the water rising at 1.40am. It was only ankle-deep at that point, but by the time Dr Farnfield arrived, it was chest-high. As Miss Brock and Sister Jones continued to evacuate the downstairs wards, the doctor and two relatively able patients raced to rescue others from shelters and summer houses. Half swimming, half walking, one by one these men rescued the helpless patients from the open-air shelters, reported the Western Gazette. Only just in time were all rescued, for by 3am the flood had risen to a depth of 4 feet 6 inches in the house and 6 feet outside. The water also washed away an oak tree and 16 yards of stone wall. It flooded numerous houses, shops and other Gillingham businesses to depths of up to 5 feet. Grocer Mr Hayden and butcher Mr Toogood were among those hardest hit, along with Wilts United Dairies, whose engine room was flooded and churns and equipment washed out of the yard. At Town Mills, the water reached one of the highest levels ever recorded. In the immediate aftermath, Gillingham Grammar School head Alfred Mumford loaded a 25-pound joint of beef and all the trimmings onto a farm wagon and delivered it to Plank House to feed patients and staff. Repairs to many of the bridges and buildings took months, but production of Mills bombs at Borton Foundry resumed with lightning speed due to their importance to the war effort. In 2017, the Borton players performed a play that followed the fortunes of five women mill bomb makers at the foundry. Well, that's it for episode two. Join us again next week for episode three. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And me, Jenny Devitt. 